0: to this audio edition of Philip Husher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. And concerts by the CSO on Thursday, April 14th and Friday, the 15th, feature guest conductor Klaus Mekola and violin soloist Daniel Lozakovich. The program includes Eleven Gates by Anders Hilboy, Prokofiev's Violin Concerto No. 2, and Stravinsky's ballet The Firebird. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Prokofiev Violin Concerto No. 2, a work lasting about 26 minutes. Prokofiev wrote his first violin concerto shortly before he left Russia in 1918. The second concerto was composed 17 years later as he was preparing to return home. Why Prokofiev decided to go back has been variously attributed to patriotism, opportunism, nostalgia, and political naivete. In the United States, he had found limited popularity and financial difficulty as a wandering pianist and composer. In Paris, he was more successful and more comfortable, but he increasingly longed to see real winters again and spring that bursts into being from one moment to the next. In 1933, he concluded that the air of foreign lands does not inspire me because I am Russian and there is nothing more harmful to a man than to live in exile, to be in a spiritual climate incompatible with his race. Nearly all the music Prokofiev is remembered for was written in his homeland, and in 1933 he could not foresee the harm that would ultimately come to him under Joseph Stalin, who, in a stroke of fate no work of fiction would dare, died on the same day as Prokofiev in 1953. Most of Prokofiev's celebrated Soviet contemporaries had either emigrated permanently, like Stravinsky and Nabokov, or stayed put, like Shostakovich and Pasternak. Prokofiev tried for the best of both worlds, although when he left Russia in May 1918, he expected to be back in a few months. But he found life outside his homeland too promising. Prokofiev received his first official invitation to return to Russia in 1923. He declined the offer and the next years as well. When he did return in 1927 for a three-month tour, he was greeted as a celebrity. The next years were a time of increasing frustration. Prokofiev recognized the urgent need to settle on both a compatible musical style and a home base. He decided to resume Soviet citizenship as early as 1932. He didn't close up his Paris apartment until 1936, however. In 1934, he paved the way for his move by publicly addressing the question of what kind of music should be written at the present time in the Soviet Union. For Prokofiev, the solution rested on the abiding strength of melody, Quote, simple and comprehensible without being repetitive and trivial. We must seek a new simplicity. It was a shrewd battle cry, both politically correct and consistent with Prokofiev's genuine beliefs. The second violin concerto was Prokofiev's last non-Soviet commission. It was written for the French-Belgian violinist Grobel Sautin. Prokofiev recalled, in 1935, a group of admirers of Sautin asked me to write a violin concerto for him, giving him exclusive rights to perform it for one year. I readily agreed, since I had been intending to write something for violin at that time and had accumulated some material. As in the case of the preceding concertos, I began by searching for an original title for the piece, such as Concert Sonata for violin and orchestra, but I finally returned to the simplest solution, Concerto Number 2. Nevertheless, I wanted it to be altogether different from Number 1 in both content and style. Prokofiev worked on the concerto at the same time as the ballet Romeo and Juliet during the summer of 1935. The two have much in common, particularly an ardent and voluptuous lyricism. The concerto was begun in Paris, continued in a number of hotel rooms, and completed in Russia, a reflection of Prokofiev's nomadic concert tour experience, as he put it, but also a reminder of how he straddled two worlds at the same time. The concerto begins with the solo violin playing an unaccompanied G minor melody, as if Prokofiev wished to establish from the outset the preeminence of melody and a new simplicity of language. The first movement, based on classical sonata form, is almost relentlessly lyrical. The essential drama of contrast comes only from the switch of key and mode to B major for the second theme. The second movement in E-flat major combines a light accompaniment like the ticking of a clock with a sweet and soaring melody in the violin. The mood is serene, disturbed only from time to time by a more urgent and searching music. These roles are reversed at the very end as the violin plays pizzicato triplets to the main tune now low in the orchestra. In complete contrast, the finale is brash and athletic with a rustic main theme that suggests peasants dancing and the unexpected use of castanets, a touch of local color that seems to predict that the world premiere would be given on another of Prokofiev's whirlwind tours in Madrid. Program notes by Philip Husher on Prokofiev's Violin Concerto Number no. 2. And now on to Stravinsky's complete ballet, the Firebird, the performance time, about 47 minutes. The Firebird opened on June 25th, 1910. On June 26th, Stravinsky was a famous man. The great impresario Sergei Diaghilev had predicted as much. At one of the final dress rehearsals, he pointed to Stravinsky and said, Mark him well. He is a man on the eve of celebrity. Diaghilev was a good judge of such things, for in 1910, his circle included many of the most famous creative artists of the time. He was also perhaps excessively proud, for he had discovered Igor Stravinsky, or to be more accurate, he was the one who put Stravinsky in the right place at the right time. The rest was all Stravinsky's doing. The right place was Paris in 1910. By chance, Diaghilev had heard Stravinsky's music for the first time just two years before at a concert in St. Petersburg. He immediately invited the 26-year-old composer to assist in orchestrating music for the 1909 ballet season in Paris. But Stravinsky owes his first international success to Nikolai Cherepnin and Anatoly Yadov, both prominent though modestly talented Russian composers who declined Diaghilev's offer to write music for the Firebird. Richard Taruskin has debunked the beloved old story that Liadov, a famous procrastinator, initially accepted but lost the job when Diaghilev learned that he was just stocking up on manuscript paper at the time the first installment of the score was due. The Firebird was a spectacular success. According to Ravel, the Parisian audience wanted a taste of the avant-garde, and this dazzling music by the daring young Russian fit the bill. The Firebird was Stravinsky's first large-scale commission, and being an overnight hit, it was quickly followed by two more. The first, Petrushka, enhanced his reputation. The second, the Rite of Spring, made him the most notorious composer alive. Both of those works were more revolutionary than The Firebird, less indebted to folk melody and the gestures of other masters, and spoke in a voice of greater individuality. But The Firebird is one of the most impressive calling cards in the history of music, a work of such brilliance that if he had written nothing else, Stravinsky's name would still be known to us today. Although Stravinsky later called the Firebird Orchestra wastefully large, he used it with formidable clarity and imagination. For me, Stravinsky wrote, the most striking effect in the Firebird was the natural harmonic string glissando near the beginning, which the bass chord touches off like a Catherine wheel. I was delighted to have discovered this, and I remember my excitement in demonstrating it to Rimsky's violinist and cellist sons. I remember, too, Richard Strauss's astonishment when he heard it two years later in Berlin. The score is filled with delicious details, though none so novel as the one Stravinsky rightfully claimed as his own, and in the closing pages a magnificent sweep unmatched by much music written in the previous century and little since. With The Firebird, Stravinsky found instant and enduring fame. And, oh, yes, to complete the picture, he later wrote, I was once addressed by a man in an American railway dining car and quite seriously as Mr. Firebird. Here is Igor Stravinsky himself on the Firebird. I had already begun to think about the Firebird when I returned to St. Petersburg from Ustilug in the autumn of 1909, though I was not yet certain of the commission, which in fact did not come until December, more than a month after I had begun to compose, I remember the day Diaghilev telephoned me to say, "Go ahead," and my telling him I already had. Early in November, I moved from St. Petersburg to a dacha belonging to the Rimsky-Korsakov family, about 70 miles southeast of the city. I went there for a vacation a rest in birch forests and snow-fresh air, but instead began to work on the firebird. Andrei Rimsky-Korsakov, son of the composer, was with me at the time, and he often was during the following months. Because of this, the firebird is dedicated to him. The introduction up to the bassoon and clarinet figure at bar six was composed in the country, as well as notations for later parts. I returned to St. Petersburg in December and remained there until, in March, I had finished the composition. The orchestra score was ready a month later, and the complete music mailed to Paris by mid-April. The score is dated May 18th, but by that time I was merely retouching details. The Firebird did not attract me as a subject. Like all story ballets, it demanded descriptive music of a kind I did not want to write, I had not yet proved myself as a composer, and I had not earned the right to criticize the aesthetics of my collaborators, but I did criticize them, and arrogantly, though perhaps my age, 27, was more arrogant than I was. Above all, I could not abide the assumption that my music would be imitation Rimsky-Korsakov, especially as by that time I was in such revolt against poor Rimsky. However, if I say I was less than eager to fulfill the commission, I know that in truth my reservations about the subject were also an advance defense for my not being sure I could. But Diaghilev, the diplomat, arranged everything. He came to call on me one day with Fokin, Nijinsky, Boxt, and Benoit. When the five of them had proclaimed their belief in my talent, I began to believe too and accepted. Fokin is credited as the librettist of the Firebird, but I remember that all of us, and especially Boxed, who was Diaghilev's principal advisor, contributed ideas to the plan of the scenario. I should also add that Boxed was as much responsible for the costumes as Golovin. My own collaboration with Fauquin means nothing more than that we studied the libretto together, episode by episode, until I knew the exact measurements required of the music." In spite of Fauquin's wearying homiletics delivered at each meeting on the role of music as an accompaniment to dance, he taught me much, and I have worked with choreographers somewhat in the same way ever since. I like exact requirements. I was flattered, of course, at the promise of a performance of my music in Paris, and my excitement on arriving in that city from Ostulig toward the end of May could hardly have been greater. These ardors were somewhat cooled, however, at the first rehearsal. The words for Russian export seemed to be stamped everywhere, both on the stage and in the music. The mimic scenes were especially obvious in the sense, but I could say nothing about them as they were what Fokin liked best. I was also deflated to discover that not all of my musical remarks were held to be oracular, and Piernet, the conductor, disagreed with me once in front of the whole orchestra. I had written non crescendo, a precaution common enough in the music of the last 50 years, but Piernet said, young man, if you do not want a crescendo, then do not write anything. The first-night audience glittered indeed, but the fact that it was heavily perfumed is more vivid in my memory. The gaily elegant London audience, when I came to know it later, seemed almost deodorized by comparison. I sat in Diaghilev's box, where at intermission, artists, dowagers, aged Egerias of the ballet, intellectuals, ballet appeared. I met, for the first time, Proust, Giraudoux, Paul Morin, saint jean Perse, Claude, with whom years later I nearly collaborated on a musical treatment of the Book of Tobit at the Firebird, although I cannot remember whether at the premiere or at subsequent performances. At one of the latter, I also met Sarah Bernhardt. She was thickly veiled, sitting in a wheelchair in her private box, and seemed terribly apprehensive lest anyone should recognize her. After a month of such society, I was happy to retire to a sleepy village in Brittany. A moment of unexpected comedy occurred near the beginning of the performance. Diaghilev had had the idea that a procession of real horses should march on stage in step with, to be exact, the last six eighth notes of bar eight. The poor animals did enter on cue all right, but they began to neigh and whinny, and one of them, a better critic than an actor, left a malodorous calling card. The audience laughed, and Diaghilev decided not to risk a repetition in future performances. That he could have tried it even once seems incredible to me now, but the incident was forgotten in the general acclaim for the new ballet afterwards. I was called to the stage to bow at the conclusion, and was recalled several times. I was still on stage when the final curtain had come down, and I saw Diaghilev coming towards me, and a dark man with a double forehead, whom he introduced as Claude Debussy. The great composer spoke kindly about the music, ending his words with an invitation to dine with him. Some years later, when we were sitting together in his box at a performance of Pelias, I asked him, "'what he really thought of the Firebird. "'He said, "'Well, you had to start with something. "'Honest, but not extremely flattering. "'Yet, shortly after the Firebird premiere, "'he gave me his well-known photo in profile "'with a dedication, "'A Igor Stravinsky, "'en toute sympathie artistique. "'I was not so honest "'about the work we were then hearing. "'I thought Pelias a great bore as a whole, "'and in spite of many wonderful pages.' Igor Stravinsky himself on The Firebird Ballet. And here is a synopsis of the ballet. Fokine's adaptation of the fairy tale pits the firebird, a good fairy, against the ogre Kachai, whose soul is preserved as an egg in a casket. A young prince... Ivan Tsarevich wanders into Kache's magic garden in pursuit of the firebird. When he captures her, she pleads for her release and gives him one of her feathers, whose magic will protect him from harm. He then meets 13 princesses all under Kache's spell and falls in love with one of them. When he tries to follow them into the magic garden, a great carillon sounds an alarm, and he is captured. Kache is about to turn Ivan into stone, When the prince waves the feather, the firebird appears. Her lullaby puts Kachay to sleep, and then she reveals the secret of his immortality. Ivan opens the casket and smashes the egg, killing Kachay. The captive princesses are freed, and Ivan and his beloved princess are betrothed. Program Notes by Philip Pusher on Igor Stravinsky's Firebird Ballet. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.